Well, again, glad you're here this morning. And uh, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, thank you so much for worshiping with us this way. Uh, We started last week a series in uh, the study of the minor prophets. And uh, I made available to those who were here in our worship experience and uh, made it available to those of you online a, a chart that really shows you where the major and minor prophets of Israel fit into the timeline of Israeli history, uh, showing which king in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that uh, that they ministered uh, under, under their uh, governance. If you would like a copy of this, uh, I have it available in PDF form. And if you would just on your connection card there on your computer, uh, just say, I want the chart. Make sure we've got your email address and I will send you this this chart. I think it'll be very helpful because it looks at the kings and the prophets of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. All right, let's uh, have a word of prayer and then we're going to look into God's word this morning. Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are the one who is the author of this scripture. You're the one who is responsible for bringing clarity to our hearts as we look into your word. So I pray that this morning that you would take the words that uh, we speak, the words that we read out of this, your Bible, and you would burn them into our hearts and uh, you would apply them to our lives so that we would come to understand more and more what it means to be obedient to you as, as your children. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Back in November of this last fall off the coast of Avila Beach, uh, California, there were two kayakers who suddenly found themselves, their kayak, in the mouth of an extremely close sperm whale. Uh, the, both of the kayakers, of course, fell out of the boat and uh, were not, not eaten by the whale. But this whole thing is captured on video. You can go to the Internet and you can see this incident where this whale just grabs hold of that entire kayak. Uh, back in 2019, off the coast of South America, uh, excuse me, South Africa, a marine conservationist by the name of Rainier Shrimp uh, was filming a massive sardine run when suddenly a huge whale emerged from the bottom of the deep and engulfed him as well as the sardines that he was filming. And there are photographers who have uh, pictures of the whole incident as that whale breaks the surface. And you can see the, uh, the lower half of, of shrimp's body as um, it's sticking out of the whale's mouth. You know, a few seconds later, uh, the whale spit him out. Um, So it raises the question, can a person really survive being swallowed alive by a large fish? Uh, In Australia, they have their own story. Back in the late 1800s, there was a a whaler uh, by the name of James Bartley, who supposedly was swallowed by a whale and then three days later was found alive. So does this kind of thing really happen? You know, those are great fish stories. Um, But the story that we're going to look at today, the story of Jonah, is the story of the life in the in uh, is the story of the life of one of the minor prophets. Um, And it's much more than a fish story. It really is critically important story for the nation of Israel as as well as for us. So we're going to pick up reading in Jonah chapter one and verse one. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, 
the son of Amittai. Now, let's ask the question, who is Jonah? Well, from that statement, very little is known about him. He was the son of a man named Amittai. You know, <clears throat> unlike most of the writings of the minor prophets that we find in the Old Testament, you know, they would give, here's this guy, and he's from this village, this city, and these are the kings that, that he served under. Uh, this book begins rather abruptly. It's almost like we're reading chapter 2 or chapter 3 of this narrative of, of uh, Jonah's life, and, and suddenly here he is, and that's all we know about him. Not only does it begin abruptly, but this book ends very abruptly, and we'll see that in just a little bit. But fortunately, we're not left completely in the dark as to who Jonah is, because there's one more reference in the Old Testament to the prophet Jonah. So 2 Kings 14.25, Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Labo Hamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah, we see here, was from a village called Gath-Hefer. It's in the hill country of the northern kingdom of Israel, about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Ocean. It would be about three miles northeast of the village of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. One of the other things we learn here is that Jonah really ministered in the years prior to the reign of King Jeroboam II. Um, most scholars date him somewhere between 810 to 790 BC is kind of where Jonah ministered. He would have been under the, the kings of Jehoahaz and uh, Joash over, over the northern kingdom. Now, one of the things about this book, it is not written by Jonah but it's written by some anonymous uh, biographer who's telling this incident out of the life of Jonah. Now, it readily falls into four different categories. And so the first category would simply be this. It's God's call and Jonah's response. So we find the call of God in, in verse 2 there in Jonah chapter 1. God says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. So Nineveh, if you note the description here, was called a great city, the great city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was uh, situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. And uh, it's an old city dating back to probably about 4500 uh, B.C. And in fact, according to, to Genesis uh, chapter 10, it was a city that was founded or built by Nimrod, the great hunter. Um, so God told Noah, excuse me, Jonah, uh, that he had seen the wickedness of the people. In fact, the, the Living Bible says that their wickedness stinks to high heaven. That's a, a good way to, to put uh, how wicked they were. they were. They were known for, in that ancient world, for their brutality, for their cruelty. One king, for instance, Asher ba uh, Banapal, was accustomed to tearing off the lips and the hands of his enemies as a part of his brutality, as a part of his uh, cruelty. Another king, Tiglath-Pileser, flayed the victims alive and then piled up their skulls in a mountain of skulls. It was that kind of wickedness and brutality that Nineveh and the Assyrians were known for. 
So look what happens in, in verse 3. It says, but Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. <clears throat> now, the statement here, get away from the Lord, uh, not in the sense of trying to flee from the Lord's presence. Hebrew people knew that you couldn't escape from God's presence. But the idea is more emphatically that he was running away from God's call on his life. In other words, he was emphatically saying no to God's request. I mean, in verse 2, God had said, get up and go. And here in verse 3, Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. You know, oftentimes I think when, when God calls us, we simply kind of ignore that call, right? I, we just, we're not going to do that. Well, that's not so with Jonah. I mean, his response was not just to ignore the call of God. His response was to reject God's call. And so if, instead of being obedient and traveling, you know, the 500 miles northeast of the city of Nineveh, what did he do? He went in the opposite direction, 2,000 miles. At least that was his intent to, to go to, to Tarshish. Tarshish was probably on the seacoast of Spain. And so he was fleeing from God's presence. Isn't it ironic sometimes when we try to avoid God's call on our life, we quadruple the effort that we put into things? That's what Jonah did here. He also mentioned that he went down to the seacoast of Joppa. Joppa was an ancient seaport on the Mediterranean uh, Sea that corresponds with modern-day Jaffa, which is the port of Tel Aviv in, in modern Israel. Now, think about this. Jonah was willing to risk his life at sea rather than obey God's call. Now, remember, the, the Israeli people, the Jewish people, were people of the land. They knew very little about sailing the ocean. And so the readers of this book, the Hebrew readers of this book, would see that such an adventure was proof positive of Jonah's mad determination to get away from, from God's call on his life. You know what? There's always going to be consequences to our disobedience. And we certainly see that here in Jonah's disobedience. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. In the Hebrew text, the word order really emphasizes the actions of the Lord and not so much the actions of Jonah. I mean, God was about to teach Jonah a lesson as to how absurd Jonah's flight away from God was. Uh, the plans of, of sovereign God, are, are, folks, are not easily thwarted by the stubborn will of, of some kind of puny prophet, okay? So God was going to make Jonah's boat trip what we might call a teachable moment. Uh, Jonah was going to learn that it was not so easy to resign the Lord's commission or Lord's call on his life. And notice the words concerning the storm. It says that God hurled. Uh, it's that picture of hurling it like a spear. This was a storm on purpose. Uh, the very syntax there in, in verse 4 says, the ship was determined to break apart. So in contrast to that prophet, here you've got the wind and you've got the sea, and even the ship were tuned in to the Lord's purposes. But Jonah wasn't. 
And so verse 5 and 6 here in chapter 1 are going to give to us a reasonable, you know, the response of the sailors to the storm. These guys had been through storms before on the Mediterranean Sea. And yet this one was so severe that what did they do? They started calling out to their gods. Now, they were probably from a variety of different countries around the Mediterranean world, and probably most of them were polytheistic. They worshipped a variety of different gods. But they saw this, a super hat, uh, supernatural hand behind this storm. So in verse 7 it says, Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lot identified Jonah, as the culprit. So you see, when the prayers of these, sails, of these sailors proved useless, they began to seek the cause elsewhere. Now, it talks about the casting of lots, and that was a widely used method that was very common in the, in the Middle East. And the most common use for that word lot means colored stones or colored pebbles. One side would be painted dark, the other side would be painted light. And so those stones would be cast, and if you got two dark stones, the answer would be no. If you got two light stones, the answer would be yes. And if you got a black and a, and a white, then it really meant roll again here, okay? And so using this system, the sailors dealt with each individual until the color revealed who the guilty one was. And so then picking up again in verse 8, the sailors are talking to Jonah and they say, why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded, who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? And Jonah answered, I am Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this. For he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. See, the sailors here connected the dots. Uh, they had, Jonah had told them that he was running from God's call. And then notice, he called his God, he says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. As a result of that, these sailors were terrified. Uh, they were caught up in the consequences of Jonah's disobedience. And you know what? Sometimes our disobedience to God has ripple effect in the lives of others, just like it did here in, in this story of Jonah. Verse 11 and 12. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. See, the, the sailors now knew that something had to be done to placate the anger of Jonah's God. But they didn't know Jonah's God. They, they didn't know what should be done. And so what do they do? They ask him because they had no idea what Jonah's God would require them. And so Jonah confessed and it, and it really led these sailors to, man, they tried to rescue themselves even harder. And Jonah as well. They rowed for the shore, but to no avail. What you see here is I think that Jonah's conscience was pricked by his disobedience and, and its consequences. A guilt was there, but folks, compassion toward those that he had been sent to deliver God's message uh, to was not there whatsoever. Um, he didn't exhi exhibit any kind of repentance for fleeing from the Lord, but merely resigned himself 
to the only, you know, to the only seeming solution, and that was to end his life. It's interesting, though. Jonah didn't volunteer to jump in the ocean by himself, okay? Perhaps he was too frightened, or, or maybe at this point, he was merely asking for these sailors to be the instruments of God's punishment. So verse 13, instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them. They couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into this, the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Notice how this entire incident led these sailors to cry out to Jonah's God and to offer to sacrifice to him and, and a vow to serve him. In their prayers, they had shown reverence for God. They also feared God's wrath. But the fear of God's wrath has now quickly turned to awe at his great power. Chapter 2 then begins the, the, the second section, really the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And that's God's rescue and Jonah's prayer. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17, we read this. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Now this verse in chapter 2 and verse 10, where it talks about the fish spitting Jonah out onto, onto the shore, those are the sticking points on believing the truthfulness of, of this book. Uh, you know what? If these two verses were not present, then no one would ever question the fact of, of Jonah or his existence or his mission. Uh, people get hung up right here, and as a result, they reject the book of Jonah. Sometimes they reject the Old Testament, and sometimes they even reject the whole Bible. Uh, they get hung up on this story of Jonah, and they call it, that's just a fish story. It's interesting that over the last 300 years, the book of Jonah has been passed off as an allegory. It's been passed off as a parable. Uh, it's been passed off as a fictitious story that's meant to teach us uh, some kind of lesson or to teach a point. In response to that kind of thinking, let me just ask, if this were a fictitious book, why would those who sort of put together what I would call the Old Testament canon, the canon is those books in our Old Testament that are recognized as inspired by God and authoritative, why would they recognize a fictitious book in that regard when they would reject other fictitious books that have ended up in what's called the Apocrypha. You find the Apocrypha in the uh, Greek Old Testament. You find it in the, the Roman Catholic Bible. Most of those stories are fictitious stories. So why, if Jonah would be fictitious, why would they reject, reject those other books and keep this one in here? I believe that this book is included in the Old Testament canon because it was looked on as a historical narrative that called for the Jewish people to uh, toward a broader and more universal understanding of God's love and God's mercy. Think about this also. 
it wasn't really until the 19th century that scholars began talking about Jonah as a fictional writing. I mean, prior to that, from the, the time of Christ all the way to about the, the mid-1800s, virtually every Bible scholar and every reader of the book assumed that it recounted actual events. Finally, there's the witness of Jesus Christ to the authenticity of this book. Matthew 12 and verse 40, Jesus said this, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the, hearts of the, earth, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. See, Jesus used the story of Jonah to speak of his own death and his own resurrection. And if this wasn't a true story, I think Jesus would have used a different reference point other than Jonah and, and this great fish. You see, one of the problems, let's just chase a rabbit here for a moment. One of the problems that people often have with Jonah and, and the fish is that they trip up on the miraculous in the Old Testament. Even more than, than miracles in the New Testament. Lots of people kind of, you know, assume miracles in the New Testament are, are cool and they're true and all that. But when it comes to the Old Testament, we get hung up on those miracles there. People have trouble with Elisha and, and a floating axe head or the sun going backward in, in Joshua's day or the parting of the Red Sea or manna and quail in the wilderness that miraculously appears or any number of other miracles that are found throughout the Old Testament. I want you to understand that these miracles, even Jonah surviving in the belly of a great, uh, great fish, are really, folks, easy to explain and believe in. You might say, easy? Come on, Pastor Sam, what do you mean? Yeah, I believe they are easy to, to understand and explain. Um, they're easy to explain if we sincerely acknowledge that God is almighty, that he is the almighty God. I mean, he is the all-powerful one. He's the creator God. He can do whatever he chooses. I mean, remember, it's God who created the world and created the laws of nature. And it's well within his, the realm of his capability and his prerogative if he so chooses to set aside those laws of nature. It's well within the, the realm of his capabilities and his prerogatives to, to, to set those laws aside. Um, you know, if he decides to stop the sun, um, the earth from rotating for, for a period of time, or even make a, a shadow God, go backwards, God is able to do that, isn't he? And it's, it, he can suspend the laws of nature. If he wants to suspend the laws of physics and, and raise an axe head out of, a, out, you know, out of the river, he can do that. He can use the prophet Elisha to raise somebody from the dead. He's more than capable of doing those things. So could God who created life, could he not also sustain that life in the belly of a great fish for three days, for a three-day period? And Jesus kind of summed up what I'm trying to convey to you when he said this in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. You see, he is God almighty. And so the issue is not whether or not miracles are possible, but whether God is all powerful and he is the sovereign God of the universe. Once you decide that, 
that God is unlimited, that, you know, that he can do anything, then miracles in the Old Testament are, are not just plausible, but you know what? They're expected. We would expect God to act in miraculous ways. So with that thought in mind, I believe very strongly in the truth of God's word and in the power of God to act in extraordinary ways. And because there are really no compelling reasons to view the story otherwise, I believe the book of Jonah is a skillfully written narrative recounting a series of actual events in the life of the prophet Jonah. And its purpose was to instruct God's people to more fully understand God's character particularly his mercy as it operates in relationship to repentance. So let's look in, in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 1. <clears throat> then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside uh, the, the fish. See, the significance of this verse is found in the fact that Jonah was willing to pray. I mean, from here's a near drowning experience. And now he suddenly finds himself in this terrifying environment. And nevertheless, he's able to breathe and he's able to continue living. Um, and that was a cause for rejoicing. So it says he prayed from the belly of the fish. And, and note, it says he prayed to his God, to the Lord, his God. That's significant. See, this time in the fish is going to be a learning time for, for Jonah. Uh, the belly of a fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. So Jonah had to learn that God's purpose was serious and that his concern and his power went far beyond the land of Israel and extended all the way to the enemies of Israel, the Assyrians. Verse 2 there, Jonah said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. See, that prayer really shows us that at least partially Jonah had changed his heart. And so this is going to lead him to be obedient. I, I think this was a learning and a thinking time as Jonah thanked God for his mercy toward him. Um, the ironic thing, though, folks, is that Jonah's understanding of God's mercy was very narrow. I mean, how ironic. Jonah could accept, thankfully, God's merciful forgiveness of himself, but then turn around and deny that to the Ninevites. So this prayer follows a pattern of, of a lot of the Psalms, and, and it shows us that Jonah must have been well-versed in the Psalms. And maybe he used them regularly for his own prayers. And so here in this prayer, we find kind of a, a pattern that we would find in the book of Psalms. There's an introductory summary of his answered prayer. There's a report of the personal crisis that he was in. Uh, there was a, a, a description of the divine rescue by the hands of God. And then there's a vow of praise. And so in verse 10, we read this. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Let's pause here for a second and just ask the question, what was Jonah's motive for fleeing from God? Was it out of hatred for the Ninevites? Well, maybe so, because they were bitter enemies of Israel. Maybe it was out of fear of the Ninevites. I mean, think about it. While many of the other prophets would prophesy against the nations around them, Jonah is the only one who was sent in person to Nineveh, to denounce that nation. Uh, 
here's this lone solitary figure and he's going to confront and he's going to condemn this great city. And so maybe there was some fear there. But maybe also it was out of sadness at uh, the coming disaster that Jonah knew was going to come up on the, the Israelites at the hands of Nineveh and, the, and the, this Assyrian Empire. Uh, maybe he's gazing into the future and, and he sees the destruction of Israel coming at the hands of the Assyrians. I think all three of those are motives as to why Jonah ran at this time. But you know what? God didn't let him run. And so in chapter 3, we find God's second call to Jonah and Jonah's obedience. I mean, once again, God renews that call to Jonah, uses the same wording, arise and go. And uh, note also, God has already revealed to Jonah what he's supposed to say, his message. So beginning in in chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. So Jonah's back where he started from. Um, if he had obeyed in the first place, folks, think of all the trouble he would have avoided, okay? That's the truth for us as well. I mean, if we were to obey God the first time he speaks, think of all the turmoil that, that we could avoid. It says, this time Jonah obeyed. <clears throat> Verse 2, there are three imperatives there. It says, arise, go, proclaim. Now, this trip to Nineveh, about 500 miles. And according to the usual manner of transport, if he uh, took a camel or maybe a, a donkey caravan, it's still a 30 days journey. If he walked it, it would be much, much longer. Notice also there in verse 3, a description of the size of the city. It says it took three days to see it all. Perhaps uh, what he's talking about is the entire administrative area of Nineveh. Or Maybe it could be a reference to this was just a three-day event. It took Jonah three days to preach all over the city and deliver his message. Jonah would probably have delivered his message in Aramaic, which by the 8th century B.C. was pretty much a common language among merchants that moved from city to city. And so the people would have understood the Aramaic. Verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will will be destroyed. Now, notice how brief that message is. In the Hebrew, it's only five words. Now, our text doesn't make it plain whether Jonah said any other kinds of things there. But those five words said it all, don't they? This was God's message to the people. Um, We're going to see, though, when we get to chapter 4, that Jonah delivered this message with a bit of bitterness in his tone. Because I think in reality, he secretly wished that this appeal would fail and the promised destruction would come upon Nineveh. How ironic when you think about it. Here's God's messenger who's just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. And now he turns around and makes it difficult, almost impossible, for the Ninevites to experience that same deliverance from God. Here's a a graceless message delivered by one who's living in the shadow of experienced grace in his own life. But notice how the people responded to this message from their enemy here. 
Now, one would have thought that maybe Jonah would have been ridiculed, he would have been persecuted, even put in jail, or maybe even executed. But instead, the people repented, and they turned to God. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, put on burlap to show their sorrow. Verse 5 there is a summary statement. It gets into greater detail what they did, beginning in verse 6. It says, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat in a heap of ashes. That was a traditional sign of repentance and mourning. Uh, Verse 7, then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything. Uh, People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. So in verse 5 it says they believe. Now, what did they believe? Well, most likely the majority of them were not believing in God. Instead, I think what they were doing is they were believing the message. And and they decided to stop their wickedness and their violence to avert that that judgment that had been declared that was coming. Uh, This was a repentance that was really simply just postponing judgment on the nation. Because there's going to come a day, some years later, when Nineveh, as a part of the, the Assyrian Empire, you know, they're going to crush the northern kingdom of, of Israel and bring upon them all the cruelty and violence that was the, in their nature. But then, in turn, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to capture Nineveh and Assyria and they're going to uh, wipe them out, destroy them, carry them into exile. So in the end, God's judgment would fall, although it has been temporarily postponed here. Verse 10, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, (laughs) he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had that he had threatened. So the repentance was there, even if it was temporary. It's interesting that God, excuse me, that Jesus called attention to this when he condemned the Jewish people in his own day. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus said this. He says, the people of Nineveh will also stand against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. This statement from Jesus seems to indicate that there was a genuine conversion that took place in Nineveh. Uh, Jesus said the Ninevites would be present at the judgment, condemning those who reject Christ's preaching. So maybe at least some of the, the Ninevites were genuinely converted. And, and I think furthermore, if you, if you really think about it, God would not have lifted his hand of judgment if the Ninevites had only been acting out of hypocrisy. Um, There's no question that, yeah, the change of heart, the change of lifestyle they had was short-lived. But it does seem that at least some experienced repentance that led to eternal life. How long the the city submitted to to the lordship uh, of God, we, we don't know. But God responded in mercy to the repentance of the Ninevites. Job, however, 
responded with displeasure. What pleased God displeased Jonah. So the last section in this book begins there in in chapter 4. It's Jonah's displeasure and God's response. So uh, chapter 4, verse 1, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to, uh, to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Man, why, why is Jonah so upset and angry here? Uh, was it because maybe he was a, a narrow-minded Hebrew nationalist, you know, that it's the Jews and nobody else? Or was there a deep-seated prejudice here against uh, the Assyrians? <clears throat> maybe he was displeased out of the awareness that, yeah, Assyria one day would be the downfall of the nation of Israel. Perhaps also uh, Jonah felt his personal reputation Uh, was at stake here. He had prophesied judgment, and it didn't happen. Uh, And so he didn't want to appear vain and and be, you know, vain and a lying prophet. I mean, their repentance was for him a loss of face because he had predicted something and it didn't come true. At the very worst, I think, we see a prophet with a shocking disregard for human life, and and really a bitter hatred toward those who had experienced God's mercy. At the very best, he was a prophet who misunderstood God's mercy and really had a very limited view of God's plan uh, for the redemption even of his own people. And so Jonah prays a very selfish prayer here. Uh, Notice the word I or me. Uh, Here in the New Living Translation, it occurs seven different times. In the Hebrew, the personal pronoun occurs nine times. And here's what he says, God, I knew that if I had preached, these people would repent and that you would forgive them. That's what I was afraid of. That's why I ran from you. Look also at Jonah's description of God's merciful nature. He, it's almost, it, it, this statement is almost a close paraphrase of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, where uh, God revealed his character to, to Moses. Uh, God described himself in this very same way, he, that he is a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. And, and, and Jonah said, you are eager to turn back from destroying people. Notice there how Jonah uses God's own nature to complain back to God. It's your fault, God. If you hadn't been like you are, none of this would have happened. Man, what an arrogant position Jonah takes here. What an, what's amazing here is that Jonah did not use these words of praise, uh, you know, as a praise, but simply as a tirade against God. So this prayer, this tirade against God, shows us that although Jonah was finally obedient to God, he certainly didn't have a spirit of submission in obedience to God. And yet I wonder how many of us sometimes are just like that. You know, we murmur against God, uh, against his sovereign will, and we say, okay, God, I'll obey you, but reluctantly. Verse 4. 
The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? See, God responded by asking Jonah if it was right or if if Jonah was justified to feel that kind of anger. Uh, Jonah's anger was not some kind of righteous indignation. No, it was out-and-out selfishness. Uh, And it certainly was inappropriate. Verse 5, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city, and he made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. A shelter, this would be the kind of booth or something that, like they made during the, the Festival of Tabernacles. It would be a, made of branches and, and leaves and, and, and so forth. <clears throat> and so I wonder, what were, what were Jonah's thoughts? He's sitting out here in this shady shelter, looking down on the city. Uh, what was he thinking about? Maybe... Maybe he was thinking, maybe the repentance of these Ninevites is not going to be genuine. Or, or maybe he was convinced that he was right to be angry and that God should carry out his plans, uh, his original plan of bringing destruction to the city. You see, maybe he was also thinking that the Ninevites are going to return to their old ways, and I'm going to watch to see that happen. Rather than examining himself as the Lord wished, Instead, he examined the city to see if they were the ones who would change. Uh, Jonah wanted to see what would happen. This interesting, the same verb, see, is used in 3.10 when it says God saw or was seeing the Ninevites turn from their evil. God looked on that with delight. Jonah looked on it with anger. So in verse 6, And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his comfort, his discomfort, and Jonah was grateful for the plant. God is going to discipline Jonah in a most interesting way here. You know, his leafy shelter probably, you know, uh, initially was adequate, but over time and under the sun, those leaves would wilt. Uh, they would fall off, and so then the sun would, would beat down on Jonah. And so at this point, God provides a fast-growing gourd vine to bring some relief to Jonah. Here's Jonah, even in his stubbornness, and God is providing unmerited favor on him. Now comes another lesson that has to be learned in, in God's school here. Here's Jonah, and here's the text. It says, Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. He was deliriously happy. This is the first time in the entire book we see Jonah happy. And it's, you know, not, he didn't, wasn't happy when he was miraculously delivered from the, the storm or from the fish, nor was he deliriously happy when the people repented over his preaching. His happiness comes from a simple gourd vine that grows up. And it really maybe has a twofold explanation. First of all, yeah, there was relief from the heat. But also, maybe this miraculous growth was interpreted as a sign of God's favor that would maybe vindicate, Jonah, vindicate Jonah's own feelings of disappointment at the, the Ninevites' repentance. God, though, moves very quickly to end Job's happiness. Look at verse 7. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Job. 
The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to become angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? You know, there in verse 9, God's question to Jonah had been a tender one. Is it right, Jonah, to feel, you know, such anger at the death of a plant? But God's statement in verse 10 then carries with it much, a, a lot of force. It was much more forceful. It says, you've been concerned with a vine. I, God, have been concerned with the great city of people. <clears throat> Here's Jonah. And he's concerned with something, uh, just an in insignificant portion of God's creation. God, on the other hand, was concerned with the highest of his creation, and that was mankind. See, this whole chapter really sets up a sharp contrast between Jonah's attitude and God's relationship to Nineveh. And the chapter really sets forth the theme of the entire book in a very stark way. <clears throat> and that is, God's compassion extends far beyond just the nation of Israel. It extends to people everywhere. This was a call for the Jewish people to gain a broader and more universal understanding of God's love and God's mercy. And so that final question there at the end of the book in, in verse 11 really captures the very intention of this book. God says, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? This is the issue of grace, grace and mercy. You know, just as, as Jonah's provision uh, of the vine that, that God provided for him was something that he didn't deserve, so deliverance from judgment for the Ninevites was something they didn't deserve as well. Uh, so neither Nineveh nor Jonah fully understood that God's wish for his creation was salvation and, and not destruction. I think here's a lesson for us as well. It is never right for us to resent the grace that God shows to other people. Don't ever do that. You know, it comes down to a choice between gourds or souls. Let me call attention to one more thing here. Um, this book also really serves as a great illustration of the sovereignty and the power of God to accomplish his will. In other words, when God has a plan, he's, going to, he's not going to let anything stand in the way, but he will use whatever means is necessary to accomplish his good pleasure. There is a phrase that repeats four different times in this book that really shows how God was hedging his prophet in and bringing him back to God's plan. It's the term arranged, or some translations uh, appointed, or other translation says prepared. First time we see it is in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, God arranged a fish. God appointed a fish 
to be there at the precise time when he needed it. And then here in chapter 4, <clears throat> we see that he appointed a vine or arranged for a vine to grow up. And then that's <clears throat> verse 6 and verse 7. He arranged for a worm to come and to eat that vine. And then verse 8, he arranged for a scorching east wind. And then add to that the hurling of a storm at sea. God is going to use whatever means are necessary to bring about, uh, to bring us to obedience. <clears throat> My prayer for each one of us is that we would learn to be obedient from the start. Why, folks, would we want to go through what Jonah went through? Um, for God to use us however he desires. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the lesson of Jonah. Teach us to obey you the very first, right off the bat, that we don't have to go through so much turmoil to be used of you to make a difference in the world. Teach us the, the truth that we learn in Jonah, that your grace and mercy are free and extended to all.